Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Sarani, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Dr. Tom Scalia, Professor of Surgery at the University of Maryland and Physician-in-Chief at the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center. Recently, he senior authored two articles on complications of angioembolization for high-grade liver injury. The articles are Major Hepatic Necrosis, a Common Complication After Angioembolization for the Treatment of High-Grade Liver Injuries, which appeared in the Journal of Trauma, Volume 66, Issue 3, pages 621 to 629, in March of 2009, and a follow-up analysis of the same patient cohort entitled Treatment of Major Hepatic Necrosis, Lobectomy versus Serial Debridement, which appeared in the Journal of Trauma, Volume 69, Issue 3, pages 562 to 567, September 2010. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Scalia. My pleasure. I thought we'd start by uh, just addressing liver injury as an overview. Dr. Maddox's uh, book, Top Knife, which I think many uh, senior residents and fellows read, refers to in the injured liver as the ninja master, and he quotes it as saying, a cunning, vicious, and lethal adversary. So let's start by asking you to give a brief overview of the options available to the trauma surgeon when facing a high-grade liver injury and the complications or pitfalls associated with management strategy. Well, I would absolutely agree with Dr. Maddox. It's a really, it's a difficult thing to... Um to get at, and people still bleed to death, and I don't care who you are. The, I don't think that the, the tricks have really changed a lot over the last years. They may have changed how we apply them, but the, the techniques, I, I think, are about the same. And my approach to um, a bad liver injury from the beginning is to obviously identify it, um, and identify that, that that is the source of major blood loss. Um, certainly, temporizing with a uh, Pringle maneuver can be very helpful. That will, of course, control inflow via the hepatic artery in the portal vein. The problem with the really high-grade liver injuries is that they all have a hepatic vein component. And um, so you will get some bang out of the Pringle buck but it's unlikely going to stop the hemorrhage. Having then um, done that and identified the hepatic vein com component, uh, you need to make some attempt to repair and the, the liver and, and, and get hemostasis. The next thing I try to do is, is identify that a retrohepatic vena cava injury does not exist. If it does, then that's a really difficult problem and you will make the bleeding from the IVC worse by mobilizing the liver. In that case, uh, temporizing with packing, I think, is really a very wise idea and trying to not open the retrohepatic uh, caval injury, not get that, get that open to air. Those people essentially all bleed to death at that point. Understanding the anatomy of the injury is important. Uh, fully mobilizing the liver, I think, is a, an important step, taking the falciform and the triangular ligaments uh, down. You can't really operate on the right lobe of the liver in the right 
upper quadrant. You have to get it up onto the abdominal wall, in my opinion, in order to see it. Getting some lap pads back behind the right lobe will bring that up into your face, and then you can make some decisions about how it is you want to approach it. Um, finger fracture, certainly a, a wonderful uh, technique. Uh, the further posterior and the more central is the injury, the more problematic that can become. Um, as I have gotten older, I have employed uh, resectional debridement more and more. Uh, it gets the injured liver out of your way. You need to be you know, pretty skilled in a big injury to, to utilize that, but in a lateral left lobe or lateral right lobe of the injury. I think it's a fabulous technique. Um, you score the capsule. You go through the substance of the liver. I have started using the universal stapler to divide the liver. I think it's very helpful. You identify the big um, hepatic vein branches and staple them or ligate them. And that, I think, can be um, a very, very helpful technique. And, of course, packing as a bridge to angioembolization in many uh, scenarios makes a lot of sense. Which gets us then to the two papers that you, uh, that you help write. And uh, <clears throat> in those papers, you described high-grade liver injuries for which damage control strategy mm -hmm. was implemented. Your papers talk about the importance of, of instituting damage control. And those patients were then taken to the interventional radiology suite for angio uh, in interrogation, if not embolization. Let's start by asking the question, before we get into the meat of the matter, um, from the complication rate, should all patients who undergo damage control laparotomy for a high-grade liver subsequently undergo angiography, or should angiography be reserved for the patient in whom bleeding is only temporized or not controlled? Maybe in yes and maybe <laughs> in no. And, and I don't think that one uh, strategy fits all. So in a lateral injury where you have gotten pretty good hemostasis, but then you have packed for adjunctive hemostasis, I don't think there's a compelling indication for angioembolization. You contrast that with a gunshot wound through the central portion of the liver where there's a, a pretty high likelihood that there's going to be embolizable disease. And I think that kind of a person uh, probably does benefit from angiography early postoperatively. You can't see the middle of the liver with a laparotomy. And if they lost a lot of blood, it, they bled from somewhere. And packing that person, getting temporary hemostasis, and taking that patient to the angiography suite, I think is life-saving and makes a huge amount of sense. Because you're using your packs in that instance to control the venous component of bleeding, and you're relying on your angiographer to address the arterial component. Absolutely. And you, you can get some temporary control of some of the arterial bleeding by packing. And I think that just buys you the time to get to the angio suite where the, they can precisely identify the areas of bleeding and then embolize them. Okay. And then we get to the, to the two papers, of course, which really caught my attention. Um, your papers reported that the most common complication following angioembolization was major hepatic necrosis and had an incidence of 42%, which, which for the most common complication is certainly very worrisome because it's a, it's a dramatic complication. Um, 
I guess my first question is, is this just a piper to pay for this severity of injury, or is this a byproduct of either over-aggressive packing or over-aggressive angioembolization? Probably all are true. So I think that this is just this, the cost of doing business. And I got to tell you, when we started to collect this data, in my mind, I thought that the, I said, well, it's pretty common. I bet it's 15 percent. Then Danielle and Deb came and said, oh, no, boss, it's 40 percent. I said, no, you, you got to be wrong. We had to miss some patients. It's 40 percent. And I think that that is probably a factor of a number of things. I think tight packing probably contributes. I think severity of injury absolutely contributes. I think embolization technique um, probably contributes. If you use a lot of non-selective, you load the catheter up, there's a bunch of bleeding things, the patient's really sick, and you just fire the particulate matter um, into the injured liver, you're going to necrose a good portion of the liver. It makes some sense, right? You've knocked off the arterial supply. The portal vein supply is probably gone from the injury. Is it a big surprise when the liver dies? No. Can we be a little bit better about trying to be more selective? Yeah, I think we probably can, but not in every instance. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have one of those people that you've packed and, and they're still marginal, you just don't have the ability to take two or three hours and get a guide wire out to every little pseudoaneurysm and embolize them. In that case, this is the price of doing business. Is it bad? Yeah, it's bad, but they're alive. And that's a, that's a very important point. One thing that came to my mind was, I wonder why the portal flow can't sustain the liver. But of course, the answer is that this is an intrahepatic disruption of the portal vein, not, not a uh, portahepatous disruption. Absolutely. And I think probably the packing isn't the portal vein's friend. Yep. I mean, it's <laughs> low pressure bleeding, right? And so pack it tight, you probably the, essentially, you've created a compartment syndrome in the right upper quadrant if you use tight packing. Do you, do you like to use it? No. On the other hand, if that's the only thing that stops the, the hemorrhage, um, then that's the only thing that stops the hemorrhage. You know, one interesting um, question is why, why are we just describing it now? Did it always exist and we didn't um, recognize it before? I think the answer is not. I, I think the practice has evolved and I think we have more young surgeons that aren't comfortable doing big liver operations because they just don't do as, sure. as many. We don't. When I started in practice, we operated on the liver all the time. You know, particularly in the crack wars, we saw a lot of bad penetrating injuries to the liver. We don't see as many anymore. We treat more non-operatively, and so I think that. The younger surgeons in the world are more comfortable with packing and embolization than they are with um, resectional debridement or hepatic lobectomy. Oh, and I, so uh, it's not a big surprise that, that right. we would end up going in this direction. It's okay. It's just the evolution of the specialty. I understand that I'm an old man and I've done you know a lot of these things, but my you know, my junior partners have it. Well, and, and your paper really puts into perspective, because if you were to ask, I think, a, uh, a junior trauma surgeon or a, or a, um, a trainee, what complication would you expect following some sort of a damage control uh, operation involving the liver, I would think the most common answer would be a bio-leak, that we all talk about bio-leaks. But in fact, your paper talks about major hepatic necrosis, which was defined as necrosis 
that's so bad it requires subsequent intervention. Um, so in that regard, your group described uh, essentially two patient cohorts, um, all of whom had uh, major hepatic necrosis. Roughly half underwent uh, formal lobectomy, and then the other half, or 14 out of uh, 30, underwent serial debridement and serial interventional procedures, which I think is what probably most people still do. They, they don't go for the lobectomy. ISS scores, demographics, everything else were equal across the board. And what your group described was that the serial debridement patients required an average of 2.7 additional operations and two more interventional-based interventions, so about five or so more interventions, higher length of stay, higher ICU length of stay, all the things that go along with more interventions. Of note, though, the point of the paper is that the group that underwent lobectomy had fewer complications. Their morbidity was lower and mortality was the same. I was wondering if you can talk about what morbidities were saved. So I think that the morbidities are exactly what you think. It's um, need for more surgery. It is bile leak. It is perihepatic abscess formation. Um, it's hemorrhage. And... None of those are a big surprise. If you step back and think, if you take all of it out the first time, they may lose some blood while you're doing it, but then the problem is solved. And, and you really, other than bile leak from the cut edge, you, you shouldn't get a lot of other problems, and, and we didn't. We drained the, the uh, injured segment so that we try to prevent bile leak or diagnose it early. But if you go in and you do a, you debride it, you say, well, I think we're kind of debrided. And then you go, well, we're not really all that well debrided. I guess we better go back and yeah. do it again. And maybe we could do this with a catheter. And out come the infectious complications of being in the ICU, so right. on and so forth. Sure. But there's always a piper to pay. And as you just alluded to, the lobectomy patient sustains a higher blood loss, maybe a hypotensive event during the lobectomy itself and then it's over and done with. Mm -hmm. What do you do for the multi-system injured patient? Now we're not talking about the gunshot to the liver, we're talking about the bad blunt who's also got a concomitant head injury and can't take that second hit. So what we do, to be perfectly honest, is we do lobectomies on those patients. And this is a little bit of a skewed um, sample because every one of those was done by two senior people, me and Ben Philosoff. And, and your paper says that. Right. And, you know, <laughs> so I'm 25 years and Ben's, I don't know, 15 mm -hmm. years. That's a lot of experience doing these. And we got pretty good at, at doing them together. And so we're pretty comfortable doing this. Now, are we going to do one on, on somebody with an ICP of 30? Of course not. Sure. But... but We've got great anesthesia, you know, dedicated trauma anesthesiologists. They know how to do this. We've got um, liver transplant anesthesiologists. We've got uh, a couple of senior people that really now do them all. And we can do one of these in, I don't know, two hours or two and a half hours. The last one was slicker than the first one. You know, we've gotten, we've learned the lessons we had to learn because it's not like doing an elective liver. The liver's big and it's swollen and it's beat up and the patients are sicker. But the earlier we do them, 
the easier they are. And that's that's a point in the paper that if the lobectomies that were done within three days of arrival uh, were easier and associated with le- blood, less blood loss than the ones that were done right. f- three days uh, post arrival or later. That's now become our standard. We make the diagnosis. I call Ben and say, "What are you doing tomorrow?" Before we would say, "I don't know. What do you think? What do you think?" Now we just say, let's go, let's get it done, because we know the longer we wait, the harder it's going to be. Now, over here, you know, you have the luxury of your experience and your partner's experience uh, back from your New York days and, and, and so on. What do you say to the trauma surgeon who's not as facile with lobectomy? Mm-hmm. Is there a role for bringing in a hepatobiliary surgeon? Frequently, the, the elective guys understand how to deal with the operation, but they can't switch their gears to the trauma setting. So I think this is the perfect place to do something like that. I I think that handing the patient to the hepatobiliary service, bad idea. They'll treat it like an elective liver. It's not. Um, On the other hand, this can't be about um, pride. It has to be about doing the right thing. And so if you're in a community hospital and you have managed this patient and they have major hepatic necrosis, and you don't know how to do this well, and you don't have a friend in the neighborhood, you should buy that patient a bus ticket and send them to some place that, that does that operation. And, and if you're a young guy or you're not real facile at this, you should call a friend and come have them help you. As far as I'm concerned, you know, this is sort of uh, what Andy Peitzman would say is the evolution of acute care surgery. We have a person in in our group, me, that is comfortable doing this. We have, you know, Ben Philosoph, a transplant surgeon who is comfortable doing this. One of us has to be there. Mm -hmm. If I'm not in town, my junior guy's doing this by themselves, it's not that good an idea. Uh, On the other hand, um, not everybody has to be the liver surgeon in the group. Mm-hmm. But you need one. And that's how we have done it. And I think that's a wise way to do it. And what do you do in terms of bringing in your fellows for uh, training? The fellow scrub, our junior partner scrub will, you know, I will um, do parts. I will have my, my junior partners do parts of the case because as much as I hate to admit it, I'm maybe not 10, but 15 or 20 years from now, I'm not going to be here. Mm-hmm. So they have to be able to step up and and know how to do these cases. And and that's, I think, an important part of bringing everybody along. Oh, and so what about the patient now who presents with bilobar devastating disease, is embolized? How often do you guys see bilobar necrosis? How much liver can you actually take? Um, I'm happy to say we haven't yet. I'm not... Um, I'm not looking forward to the day when that happens. We have done, and as you are quite aware, there are some um, scattered reports of using liver transplant. And if you have that much liver necrosis, that's probably a patient that is best served by early transplant. We've never had that. Um, but I'm sure one of these days it's going to happen. Yeah, and the and problem, of course, is frequently they're multi-system, and so the transplant docs aren't, aren't too keen to transplant. No, they're not, um, but we've done one. And uh, and a guy with poly um, trauma to the abdomen did a total hepatectomy and a Whipple for a, for a devastating injury to the epigastrium. He... Uh, 
he did well. He died later of sepsis, but you know we, we proved the concept. It can mm-hmm. be done. Mm-hmm. Was it a good idea? I, I don't know. It was that it's a young kid that was wide awake. It was his only shot. We took the shot. Well, it's a high stakes venture. I think right. you know. Um, a lot of our patients obviously come in using substances, maybe a different lifestyle than you and I lead. Some of them are going to have some degree of occult liver insufficiency. And I guess it's ultimately up to the surgeon as to how much liver you can take, realizing that we all operate really with a very limited knowledge base about the patient. Sure. I agree. We have not had that problem yet. We, uh, And there's not a – I don't think there's a way to get a cirrhotic through this. They're going to die on the, on the first day when they come in with their bad liver injury. Um, if, by the grace of God, we got them fixed – I would have to have a a real um, clear conversation with myself and with Ben and you know maybe some of the other guys in the group to get some perspective. Sharon Henry or you know one of the most the people that have been around that'll actually tell me to not to do it because I shouldn't. And uh, I I think that would be a tough one to get to get someone. But you guys aren't using any kind of um, liver function testing or biochemical no. profile to to. So the person whose bilirubin is maybe up or the lactate is just not clearing quite fast enough, they're all something like that. None of them have normal liver functions. None, they're all sick. Um, it just comes with the territory. The other thing that happens is that they all get hepatic insufficiency post-op. Mm-hmm. And even though their liver regenerates radiographically, if you bring them back in six months to close their abdomen, they act like their liver doesn't work. And it takes about 18 months for their liver to bounce back. I have no idea of why, but it's been reproducible in every one of those patients, every one of them. How often after a lobectomy are you able to close the abdomen? The earlier we do it, the better the chances are. When we were waiting and uh, discussing, we didn't get one close because they were all hugely (laughs) uh, volume overloaded when we did the case. Now we get most of them closed because we're doing it early. And so you commented earlier that uh, based on, I guess, these reports and your own uh, experience, you've actually changed the practice pattern at the Shock Trauma Center such that you you and your group, I assume, favors early lobectomy to serial development. It's not even – we don't even talk about it anymore. Any role in uh, – in this? these are retrospective studies. So right. these would be the level four studies that we all say is hypothesis generating, not hypothesis proving. Any role in um, doing something prospective to validate this before – this is a huge paradigm shift. It is a huge paradigm shift. Um, I think it would be hard to do a prospective trial. It's, it's not impossible. You'd have to collect a few centers – that are really able to, you know, sort of play major league ball in in this arena, and, and then we're not the only group. And have the people. volume to play ball. Yeah, and but then you would have to have the volume to play ball. The problem is if you got thirty centers, there's going to be a huge amount of variability in expertise and practice patterns, and it and you're still going to have to do this for some years to do it. And I, I think that this is one of those times, and this is, you know, terrible science, when uh, we're going to say you, you should believe it because we said it. 
Okay. <laughs> and I just don't see a way to go and prove it. Um, and it's not the only way to do it, but, you know, we've thought about this a lot. We've um, done this with the best methodology we have. I recognize it's not great, but it's as good as we could mm -hmm. do. Um, we're a pretty high-volume center, and um, I, I, I frankly think that's as good as we're going to get. All right. We don't, unfortunately, have a lot of time left with you, but I figured in the last couple of minutes um, you might want to comment on who should not undergo hepatic lobectomy, either early or late following injury. Who should be the serial debridement and the IR-based procedure? I think the people that don't really have major hepatic necrosis. So you know, one of my eager partners will come and say, Let's do a lobe. Look at the CT scan. I look at that CT scan. I said, yeah, not. <laughs> a, it's not that bad. B, let's throw all caution in the wind and go see the patient. They're not really toxic at all. They're fine. We don't need to go and hurt them by doing this big operation on them. And that's when I think the judgment really comes comes in. Because you're not operating on a CT scan, you're operating on a patient. But you're, you're not going to uh, base your judgment to do the lobectomy for the patient who has hepatic necrosis and other factors. So age, uh, concomitant injury, physiologic status, things like this are not going to... Not really, because I think that once they have real major hepatic necrosis, once three-quarters of their right lobe is dead and... and they're ill from it, it's not going to go away. And, and I think that um, you go sit down with the patient or the family and you have a discussion and say, this is our best shot. Now, are we going to do a, a right hepatic lobectomy on a guy that's 95 years old and multiple organ failure? No, because that patient's not going to survive sure. Sure. one way or the other. That's a different conversation. But um, And I would point out, if memory serves, the average age in your uh, cohorts was in the neighborhood of 50. Yeah. So <clears throat> these were not 20-year-olds. Right. right. All right. Um, well, I think that this has been a, a very fascinating uh, discussion about um, what I think may become a uh, evolving practice change uh, for the treatment of um, complications of angioembolization. I think it makes a couple of critical points that angioembolization is not a, it's not a free lunch. You don't just not get away with it. Uh, and that a pretty impressive intervention may be needed to, uh, to put out the remain remainder of the fire once the uh, hemorrhage is arrested following major injury. I know you have to leave, and unfortunately uh, we're going to have to cut this uh, interview a bit short. I could stay here for probably an hour and pick your brain on other stuff. Uh, we've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Tom Scalia regarding management of high-grade liver injury and its sequela. I would like to again thank Dr. Scalia for taking the time to share his views with us and compliment him and his group for their ongoing work in this field. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Bob Axirani.